there, Green Future Growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. Welcome to the Organic Gardener Podcast Day. I am, I'm like more than thrilled because I have a guest on the line who is passionate about water, just like I am. And it's Friday, November 8th, 2019. And so um, he's even written an amazing book called to catch the rain and from he works he's a professor at humboldt state university in california and he has his own business apropedia which um i may not be saying right but i went to the website and it's so cool it's about permaculture and sustainability and technology and poverty reduction and coming up with like collaborative solutions which it's just like i'm like so excited because uh if you don't know i'm teaching third grade this year uh, I'm not sure how much I've mentioned that in my podcast because I don't know if I released anything since I started teaching again. Except for anyway, um, it's like we're talking about government and making social change this week and the importance of voting and elections. And it's just uh, I can't wait to show them his website because I think it's going to be really apropos. So you're going to love today, and here to tell us like more in depth is Lonnie Grafman. So welcome to the show, Lonnie. Jackie, hey, thanks. It's it's great to be on. Um, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm also really excited about your your new position starting teaching again, third grade. That's, it's awesome, and I look forward to tying it into our talk. Thanks. Yeah, it's going to be just great. So I know listeners are going to love this. So tell listeners a little bit about yourself. Um, so I, I'm an instructor at Humboldt State University in, in far northern California. Um, uh, where I work with students to to just make real projects all around the world. Um, sometimes during the summers, we're teaching in other countries. Uh, uh, two years ago was India. And then before that, we were in Dominican Republic for a long time and Mexico before that, El Salvador before that. And always, always with the same kind of intent, which is uh, to work together to find out what people need and to find out what people want to do about it. And then just to work together on it, not coming in with any solutions, um, whether we're working locally or internationally, we don't come in thinking that we know the answer. We just come in with the excitement to work together. Um, and, uh, and, and tying that to, to third grade, to, to that end, we work with a lot of grade schools, K-12, uh, building, um, agriculture, uh, garden infrastructure, uh, for instance, with some of the schools up here in, in, in Northern California, uh, with one of the schools, Zane Middle School, we've built rainwater catchment, uh, gardens, edible landscaping, solar-powered robot fighting stations, uh, human-powered sundials, um, uh, and, and permeable pavement, all types of projects, really just to, to raise the the educational experience of the students, both in their engagements in the projects, but also by making an environment that, that that's really nurturing. And, and I'm sure given your multiple passions, you know that if, if students are catching their own rain and they're using that water to grow their own food on campus, their, their, their educational experience is just uh, incredibly heightened. Mm. Absolutely. And I am so lucky this year to be working at a school that has a garden and like recycles and is all about sustainability. And um, the kids like the principals just he's super into taking them outdoors. Like they go out to recess three times a day. Like I can't even believe I'm at a school with a 
three day three recesses and they go out like no matter what the weather pretty much and like it's got to be raining pretty hard for them to stay in and just they get out there's like a nature trail there's an outdoor classroom i mean it is cool it's not a huge yard it's a very small local community school in a rural area and yeah and then like mike and i always catch rainwater like i just think that's super cool and the solar solar power solar powered robot because um, my kids are so big into Legos and next year in fourth grade, they get to do that. Oh yeah. So, so we, we pretty much just adapted that project and then made it solar powered so they can stay outside for the competitions and also be inspired about powering things with the sun. So, like, to me, your organization sounds like my ideal vision of the Peace Corps. So, like, we're, but I've always, like, my big struggle with the Peace Corps has always been, like, why don't they send, like, whole groups to less places instead of sending, like, individuals to too many places? Because I think part of the power is in teamwork. But, and I also love that your attitude about, like, you go in with no, like, pre- you know, like get people to solve their own, come up with their own solutions. Yeah. I mean, we travel, I do international work because I love learning. Like I, I, I don't go to other places because I think that um, uh, I just know so much more. In fact, I think I probably have much more impact in my own local community because I know where to find stuff and I know who's going to donate, you know, (laughs) Um, but I I work internationally because I want to keep, pushing my mind in that, in that way. Uh, and, and so it becomes really apparent when I'm doing that, that the, the more I just kind of shut up and, and listen <laughs> and, and be there for, for, for shared experiences, the better the projects are going to go. Um, my, my first international project, which was almost 20 years ago, um, didn't go as well, uh, because I built it in the U S before it got shipped. And so I had no idea what people really needed. Um, uh, a nonprofit was paying for it, and um, uh, and ultimately, I think I wasted their money. Uh, and so now I just avoid that completely by by having meetings, open community meetings, where people talk about what they need. And I do the same thing with schools. So when we work with a school, uh, um, e- even here in the U.S., I just have meetings with the teachers and staff. And I'm like, all right, here here's things that we've done in the past, but what are people's needs right now? And we just start brainstorming needs, and then we, you know, out of that we find out which ones people want to prioritize and which ones they're willing to work on. Cause you know, some people might be like, Oh, we really need blank. You know, we really need a new pathway, but then no one's willing to say, and I'm willing to work on it. And so, and so then the pathway dies. Um, uh, right now we're working with another school, uh, six rivers charter high school and Arcata high school. They're, they're conjoined schools and we're building a large agricultural learning area, like, uh, like quite large. Uh, last year we put in a, 60 foot gabion wall those are those uh chain link fence kind of made into a a, a jail cell for rocks uh that you'll sometimes see on the freeway so we put in a, a 60 feet of that and are taking what was once a, a feral area that a high school student recently called um uh oh he had such a great name for it not the zone of no man's end it was the uh, zone of total degradation. I can't can't remember, but one of the high school students had a great name to just describe the wasteland that used to be there. And now we're turning it into this large agricultural learning area, and they have classes that are coming down three days a week to learn about building up the soil. And then next year they'll be learning about planting and harvesting. 
Um, and it's just for me, it, it, it's very exciting to have my high my my university students working directly with high school students to improve their own education around gardening and agriculture, uh, um, water, and and also solar energy. I love that for so many reasons. Because, like, a lot of kids, they just don't have any real concept of what it's really like to go to college. Like, I never realized it, but I grew up with, like, a college in my backyard. And all through middle school, we would, like, cut through the college campus to get to school, to my house. Which just was, like, this freak thing for, like, the one block where I lived or a couple of blocks where I lived. Like, nobody else in the town really had that experience. But I felt like listening to those kids just had a huge impact on my life. Even, like, I wasn't listening to them, but just, you know, like, walking by college kids. And I think it's so important that your students are going and having that impact on high schoolers and plus doing it through gardening. You know, your your point, I think, is, is just so so important right now um you know there's we're finally starting to have a lot of conversations about privilege uh, in this country and i think the the privilege of just knowing that university isn't scary yes it's it's incredible knowing that college is just just a place you can go (laughs) and even like i like even now i look back and think like i could have done so much more when i was on at college like there were so many things i didn't like if i ever knew that you could be an environmental lawyer i probably completely would have gone that way like out of high school like i had no idea like i thought all lawyers were Kramer versus Kramer type of lawyers like that was my only idea of like when Kramer versus Kramer that movie came out that was what i thought and like i just think there's so many uh, like things if if kids are like exposed to that and who knows what kind of conversations they're going to have with these high school kids while they're working in the college kids yeah this this intergenerational partnership where we have community members helping the 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 university students and so now the university students are getting to see what different community members do Right. So we might have a a local engineer giving advice to the university students. And so now they're getting a sense of this real person who's doing real engineering. And then my my university students, they go work at the high school. And now these high school students get to see what an engineer might be doing. And and these engineers look a lot like them because they're only a few years older. And so uh, um, I've done these kind of informal questions before and after after these engagements. Uh, about what students think about university, uh, and I wish somebody was tracking the, you know, the real data, and it wasn't me asking the questions. But it really seems like students are more likely to go to university after they've worked with, with students from university. I, oh, I don't I'm have... sure of it. Like, I, it's got to be true. And like, they yeah, ha- yeah, I, I mean, they have like those upward bound programs just for kids who have one or less parents that have gone to college. Like if they've only have one parent or they have no parents, they have special programs in high school. And, and that just tells me right there, there's a need, I think. Right. And, and so it's, it's great to get to do that. And then to get to do that through, uh, through agriculture, you know, through gardening, uh, through touching the soil uh, and, and learning these things that uh, up in Northern California, we're pretty lucky. A lot of our students do get to touch nature. Um, but, uh, but there's still ones that don't. And then we have projects like, uh, our project in New York, where a lot of the students who end up on that, on that project have never seen something. Oh yeah. Talk about that because I went to my very first college experience was at Pratt university, which is not too far from there. I mean, certainly in Montana, it's closer than I drive to work every day. Yes. 
uh, one of the so the project that we're we're talking about now is this project called Swale um, that is an, an art engagement project in, in New York City. It's five thousand square feet of food forest floating through New York City on the east in the Hudson. Um, it goes from from dock to dock and stays in a community for maybe a month, a month and a half. And people can come and pick food for free and take classes on food justice, uh, um, dying with food, uh, gardening, food selection, cooking classes. Um, Sometimes there's a DJ on board and and it's free for all community members. Um, We had 20,000 people in 2017 and 2018 on board. Um, And many of those were students uh, uh, three days a week. There's uh, uh, class groups of classroom students coming to visit with their teachers. Um, so how does that work? Like, is it like a ferry? Like you go at a certain time and it like docks and you get on and then you go for like a ride or like. No, it just, it just stays put um, at least it's, laterally. It's always docked. Got it. It's always, yeah. So, so we don't have people on it when it's being moved. It's a bar. It's a converted barge. We took an old sand barge and, and we just filled it with, with hundreds of tons, literally hundreds of tons of soil and rock and plants and planters and solar power and rainwater treatment and river water treatment. Uh, and so then it, it, it docks for uh, about a month or a month and a half and it stays put except it's, it's floating kind of back and forth, up and down a little, which gives you the most surreal experience because to describe this barge to you, to you, you walk on it and, it and it's hills and there's an orchard. There's uh, eight local indigenous trees and, um, and then there's just plants everywhere and all the plants are edible or medicinal and you're just surrounded by soil and nature and, and it's bobbing, you know, but you're in the city. And so, so you, at least my brain does this weird thing where it makes it look like the city is kind of moving a little, like not you because the trees must be staying put. So, so you get this experience of like just this background city kind of bobbing up and down, which I, which I really enjoy. Um, and so, so people come on. Do you they get can, seasick? I get seasick really easy. Is it like being on a dock, or like it's so it, big you don't feel that? It, it's so big that the movement is actually pretty subtle, unless there's like a storm coming in, um, uh, or when it's being moved. So I've been on it when it's being moved by by tugboats uh, in more open water. And then it definitely start. You could get you could get seasick on that, uh, but when it's on the river, it's just it's a subtle movement. Um, but you know, for for everyone, it's, for everyone, it's a different experience because it's this juxtaposition. And to set up this the, the, this idea, um, uh, I think you got to know the the background and the the visionary behind this project is Mary Mattingly, um, who I believe sometimes teaches at Pratt. So you have you have that connection. Um, and, uh, I've worked with her on quite a few projects and, and I, and I love her vision. It, this idea came, was born out of the fact that in New York, it is illegal to grow public food for public use. You can't do it. Um, you can grow private food and then have some type of public sharing. Um, but you can't grow public food for public use on public land. Um, and so we wanted to because like they're worried like people are going to get sick or something and who's going to the government's going to be responsible or something weird like what is that law about? Yeah, yeah it you know i i found out what the law was about in arizona a similar law and that's what it was was liability if somebody gets hurt picking then they could sue you because you invited them to pick oh, by yeah, of course. 
processing food. And so what what Phoenix, Arizona did with their million dollars of beautification funds in downtown Phoenix was to plant ornamental orange trees, which to me are just the most insulting thing they could have done. You know, it's like, well, not only are we not going to grow you food when we could, but we're going to grow something that looks like food, but you can't eat it. <laughs> um, but in, in New York, <laughs> so in New York, I'm not, yeah, it, it, it really is. In New York, I'm not positive that that's what it is. It, I've heard some good arguments that it's about pests, um, you know, because they're, you know, pests are an issue. Um, and if you had food that people weren't picking, then it would be rotting. Um, of course, I assert that if you work with community, you can make a situation where food won't be going to waste. Um, and so, so maritime law, though, is different. Maritime law is, is different than the city law. And so we just took it to the water. All right, we'll, we'll do this on the water. There you go. There's one of those collaborative solutions you came up with. Right. And it was, it was, there was, you know, this project had, I, I don't over well over a hundred people who would be considered a, a major contributor. Um, when we were doing the build out, our meetings always had at least 20 people um, and then plus volunteers coming to, to help build. Uh, we had 20 youth between the ages of 16 and 24 from the youth ministries of peace and justice uh, um, at concrete plant park in the Bronx that uh, were trained as docents and helped build and they led tours and they really took over the programming when we were in the Bronx. Bronx is really interesting. The spot we're at, Hunts Point, you know, the majority of food in the Northeast goes right through there. It, that's where the packaging is happening, but none of the food stays. Like you, you, you can't find uh, organic food there at, at all, except at the packaging plants, but you don't get to keep that. You know, your parents, the adults go work there, but they don't get to bring it back. In fact, in, in, in Hunts Point, there's more waste transfer stations. These are places that waste is coming from other neighborhoods and then being transferred to trucks for, to, for disposal. There's more waste transfer plants in that neighborhood than there are grocery stores. Um, so, you know, this, this food stuff and ties into why just is, Why is that? Because... Poverty. People don't have the money to shop? Uh, you know... Um, we're about to get out of my area of expertise. So I'm, I'm, I'm really good at building the solutions. Uh, but I, I'm not an expert on what all of the, the, the social and, and engineered reasons are that these communities of poverty end up in urban food deserts where you, which, which is an increasingly, um, uh, talked about term, luckily, or I'm glad we're finally talking about it. That the idea that that you have these areas, these urban environments that are food deserts, you can't find real food. And there's people tackling this issue in, in lots of ways. Uh, uh, one of my colleagues, Ron Finley, the uh, the gangster gardener. I really suggest checking out his work. Um, uh, um, but but when it comes to the the political historical and um, possibly nefarious reasons that, that poor communities, especially urban poor communities, don't have access to real food, I, I don't, I don't want to say on, on your podcast. But I think it's interesting and it's something that, that, you'll, that you'll see a lot. And more importantly, I think it's devastating and we need to fix it. And that's where I spend my energy. I like that because that's super, like this morning on Democracy Now, we were watching down in North Carolina, 
And they were, they're going to have like some environmental debate with like Elizabeth Warren and, um, what's the girl from California's and like some of the political candidates tonight, but they were talking about how a lot of poor communities are people who are suffering right here in the United States from lack of, of, you know, clean water availability and, um, exactly what you're talking about. So yeah, it's true. Well, uh, tell us about more solutions then. I, I, I love it. You know, you mentioned Apropedia, which is a nonprofit. Um, I'm the president of it, but we have a we have a new executive director, Emilio, who who's fantastic. He's uh, um, in El Salvador. I just went and uh, got to visit with him, um, and so he's really helping to to reinvigorate Apropedia. But what it is is it's a website for communities and individuals to share these solutions. Um, we have. You know, thousands of people every day from almost every country in the world visiting the site and learning how to build solutions. And we have, there's 60,000 pages. Um, there's uh, tens of thousands of, of incredible solutions that are happening right now and available for community. Um, the ones that I'm focusing on the most this year are, are the rainwater ones. And then next year, I'll be focusing the most on the solar ones because my next book will be coming out. Uh, which I'm co-authoring, and the next book is called To Catch the Sun, which is about small-scale solar power. This book is called To Catch the Rain, which is about rainwater catchment. And so we've gotten to uh, build rainwater catchment all around the, the U.S. and all, all around the world, and um, I really wanted to be able to, to to write a book so that more projects would be happening by more people, and and that's what's happened. It, it, it's been really incredible. Um, I had a lot of ways to try to judge the success of this book because I knew that I would feel like it was a failure no matter what, um, unless maybe Terry Gross interviewed me. No, no offense, but Terry Gross was the one who I was like, okay, if she interviewed me, I would feel like the book was a success. But I knew that otherwise I was going to feel like it was a failure because it's just how my mind works with purely creative endeavors. So I came up with some rubrics of how I know it was successful. And uh, one of them was based upon sales. Um, one of them was based upon downloads because this book is available completely for free for anyone. Um, and then one of them was based on stories that I got from other communities of people building with it. And and the stories that I've gotten in have just been, they've been incredible. Um, uh, people in many countries building rainwater, often often for schools, for orphanages, for, for their own house. Um, uh, a project that I'm that I'm totally in love with right now from my own neighborhood, uh, maybe about 50 miles to the south of here, um, a teacher uh, ended up coming to one of my presentations. That just it was it was at a conference for teachers, and she just came to it just because she just kind of like oh that one looks good. She could have gone to a bunch of different meetings, but she wasn't incredibly passionate about this one. She's like ah oh, it looks good, and she came. And I presented about the book and how you do rainwater catchment and a few projects. And then I just broke the teachers into themes with flip chart paper and markers. And I said, okay, design your, design your ideal setting. And she's like, you know what, I'm going to design my school. I think my school could do this. And so some teachers joined her. They designed it and she showed it off and we all clapped and loved it. Um, and then she just did it. She put in uh, a giant rainwater catchment system. Uh, and tied it into this incredible network in her school. So now what her school has, and this school is 90, 97% assisted lunch uh, program. So the students there uh, are in need of food. And so and what she's done is the water that they're catching is now watering about an acre of pumpkins that the students then sell 
during Halloween to Thanksgiving time. And they use that money to learn about business and to support their school. And then the water is also being used for um, uh, another acre of, uh, of agriculture and gardens that then is being used in their own school lunches that they're using every day. So the, the students are catching their own rainwater, using it to grow pumpkins to sell, to learn about commerce, and to grow their own food that they're using in their, in their own lunch program so that they're getting real food. And, and you know, this comes from a teacher who, this was not her um, um, hell bent on this, this is my incredible passion. Her passion is, is teaching and providing the students with what they need. And, and she was able to, to take this book and to work with community and, and just make something amazing. Um, uh, another project that, that I'm really passionate about right now uh, uh, on a similar vein is in Haiti with this, uh, um, this incredible change feature maker named Franz, who I worked with about eight years ago in Haiti is where I first met him. He runs an orphanage and uh, the students were having to walk a few kilometers to a dirty river every day to get water to grow their garden that they then use to sell and, and to, to learn about making money, but also to, to raise money so they can continue um, getting an education. And uh, so he built the first stage of his rainwater catchment system based upon the book. Um, and now they're catching some rainwater and he's raising, he's trying to raise 600 more US dollars in order to finish their system so they can be getting all of their water from rainwater catchment. And so here's this this um, uh, amazing man running an orphanage in Haiti who's building a rainwater catchment system so the students can have clean water, not have to travel to the river every day in order to grow produce so that they can support themselves in, in an incredibly depressed economy. Isn't it just a shame that that's even like still going on in 2019? And it's like going on for so many kids that they still don't have the basics like... I, it just breaks my heart that like every kid on the whole planet doesn't have access to clean water for eat, for drinking, for showering, for washing their clothes, that they don't have access to school or healthy food. Like I, I know we're getting closer. I feel it with all my heart. Like I like to think by like 2030 or 2050, but other times I'm like impatient that it, it's not now. And our populations are growing, but it's people like you who are making an awesome difference. I, I appreciate that. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons to have, to have the hope, you know, like if you look at, you know, childhood mortality, uh, we've, we've completely changed the, the, the reality around that, you know, the, the number of people dying from before they were age five has gone from, from the norm to very, very little all around the world, right? So, I mean, we're, we're definitely heading in that direction in a lot of ways. The, the number of, of women going to school is higher than it's ever been before. The number of people living in abject poverty um, is, has dropped precipitously. So I, I do feel your same hope. At the same time, it's, it, it, it is obscene that the lack of access to clean water, clean food, and clean air is killing more women and children than anything else. You know, like that's, uh, yeah, that's something that I think we should be done with now. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Totally. So and that's why I love that you're out there doing things to help, um, change that. 
actionable stuff traveling around the world, teaching people, teaching people in your local community, inspiring people, like going to teaching conferences and talking to teachers. Like, I, I appreciate that. And there's a lot of different ways we need to be attacking attacking these problems. Mine has been to focus on these small to medium projects and communities, but that will only work if I'm just one of, of millions of people doing this, right? And so it's, it's one of the reasons for the books is that there's nothing, there, there's nothing incredibly special about the, the work that I'm doing. It's not like, oh, you know, only a few people could do this. We, we literally all can be doing this. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, the first book makes it, makes it so you can do it with water in your community. The next book will, will make it so that you can do it with energy. So you know what I bet my listeners want to know, like, what are some tips for them to build their own rainwater system? Like in the book, there's lots of diagrams and pictures and like, what are some key elements that you've seen like, or common mistakes that you see people make when they try to build their own system that maybe like got any tips? Yeah. I, I mean, the, I love visiting systems that I had nothing to do with making. And I love visiting systems that, that I made like eight years ago and, and trying to learn from both of those. Um, and so some things that I, I commonly notice as problems. One is that most people have enough roof area to catch a whole bunch of water. The real problem is how are they going to store that and keep it clean and ready totally. to um, and not so, breed mosquitoes. Exactly. Um, and so storage is, is often a much bigger issue than, than how are we going to catch enough? It's more how are we going to store enough? Um, uh, so that's an issue that I, that I commonly see. Another one is uh, forgetting to put in a first flush. So what a first flush is, it's a, a device that gets rid of the first few minutes of the rainfall because that is 90% of the dirtiness in your rain happens in those first few minutes. Right? Um, that's mostly collecting stuff that has been collecting on your roof, um, especially if it's been dry for a while. And so we build this device and there's diagrams in the book of different versions. There's also commercial versions available where the first 10 minutes of, of the rain are getting diverted and you can use that on landscaping or um, at one of the local farms we built it. So they use that on their tools. So they're using that dirtyish water to clean the tools um, and work boots. Uh, but getting rid of that will keep your system clean for, for much longer. And one of the reasons that people skip it is that you don't really notice it first, unless you're taking water quality measurements, you won't really notice that you're missing a first flush for the first year. But then you'll start to notice because your your tank is just getting so much dirtier. So so I think that that's another common mistake um, for people with no. So plumbing- wait, hold on. like so yeah, what please. do you do like put a timer and uh, something that like blocks the hole, diverts the hole for what? Like how the heck does that work? So the the type I build is like the laziest uh, and hopefully longest lasting version, but there's a lot of excellent other versions. One I do mostly is I take a pipe and I put a floating ball in it that will plug that pipe once it's full. Uh, And then the water, once it's plugged, the water will then go to the tank. So you can imagine having a T where the water would go down into the pipe. Once that pipe is filled, the water will go across the T and then over to your storage tank. Um, 
And uh, I do that type because then I can just have a little hole drilled in the bottom of that, that, that downpipe with the dirty water so that it slowly evacuates before the next rain. Um, and uh, I, I like that because then I don't have to be responsible for going and opening it between rains. Uh, a way that it, a, a lot of other people build it is so that you have a valve um, so that that downpipe will fill up with dirty water and then the rest of the water will fill the tank. And then before the next rain, you need to open that valve, evacuate it uh, so that it's ready for the next one. Got it. Actually, it's kind of like what I was picturing, only just a little bit different. But there, there are other styles that use timers. There's ones that use um, uh, that actually have uh, a pipe that that um, like a valve that changes directions. Uh, you know, there there are other systems. In in general, the general name for these is called a first flush. Cool. Uh, we don't have one of those, but we just I don't know. We just fill up our rain barrels and then. We just use it for watering, like you said, like, you know, gray water areas or landscaping and stuff. Yeah, it really depends on what you're going to use the water yeah. for. And, and and also how dirty your area is and how much you don't mind cleaning the tanks. Um, if you're using it just for, for landscaping, then you just keep all that water. If you're using it for drinking, then you're probably going to want to be a, a lot more careful. Um, and, and then there's a whole range in between. Um, also, is that... Can you hear that background sound? Would you like me to go try to remove it? Jackie? Okay. I am. I was okay. I shut the recorder off, so I shut it turned it back on. All right, we're good. Well, uh so do you have a garden? Do you grow uh, a garden or are you too busy traveling and working and doing all that? Like it does it doesn't matter either way. But... Yeah, no, I, I I have tried to maintain gardens in the past. But with my travel schedule, it really hasn't worked. So I just have like herbs uh, that are part of my, my own garden. And then what I do is when I'm in town for enough time, I, I do uh, CSA, the Community Supported Agriculture. So we'll, I'll go to a farm and then once a week I go pick my, my veggies. Um, so I, I show up on the blackboard. They've written down what vegetables, how many vegetables of each I can pick that week. Uh, they have some baskets out. I grab those and then I can go out to the garden and pick the rest. And for me, uh, I love it because I get the, I get to touch the soil. I get to touch the plant. Um, I get the food I want, but I don't have to do as much of the maintenance and work and I can keep up my travel schedule. Um, oh, that's a neat business plan. I'll bet some of my listeners out there are like, Oh, I never thought about that. I could have customers. That yeah. You know, it works out own. really it works out really well. The flow is is really nice. The 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 one that uh, I've been part of in the past, I've been part of others, but the the one most recently, uh, there's one day a week you show you can show up, and there's just there's just a sign up. Hey, take this. This is what you can have. It's you know you get a a a pound of these, a pound of those. You can go out to the garden. You can pick up the you know fifteen Brussels sprouts and. Uh, uh, five pieces of shard or whatever, whatever it is, uh, and and I really enjoy it. That that said, gardens are incredible to me, and I look forward to a time where I can maintain one of my own. Um, I've heard you ask other speakers in the past, like when they got their start in in gardening, um, and 
I think it's such a, a powerful question. On Swale, I've gotten to witness a lot of students' first experience with picking food that they're going to eat, right? And their first experience seeing that a seed grows into something. And it's, it's incredible. And it's also sad that the, these students, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, they're, they're so deeply enmeshed in New York City that they just don't have that connection to, to nature. And New York is one of the cities that's doing nature connection pretty well. And even these students aren't getting to touch it. Um, for me, uh, one of the things that ended up making me, making me become a designer and teach in engineering was a garden. And I don't remember how old I was. Um, I, I really should try to figure it out, but either somewhere between six and nine, um, uh, and in my opinion, way too old to be having the experience that I had. Like, I feel like I should have had this experience much younger. But I remember I was with my mom and we were visiting a friend of hers and we were in her kitchen and this is in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, and she's got this bowl of strawberries and it was, they were so good and they were, they were glistening and they were cold and they were so sweet and I had one and she saw me staring at him uh, 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 my mom's friend saw me staring at him she's like have another I ate that next one and she saw me still staring and I I, I was one of those kids who didn't like to you know over ask and um, and she's like no just have more and I ended up eating like all of the strawberries somehow I didn't get a stomach ache but I ate a lot of strawberries and they were so amazing and later that day like maybe an hour later we go in her backyard and she's like, oh, and those are the strawberries that you're eating. And for some reason, my brain just exploded. Like the, like, like the flavor made my tongue explode. This, this concept, which should have just been part of my knowledge as a human, but it wasn't. <laughs> this concept that, that those strawberries, those consumer products that I was eating in the kitchen an hour ago were actually were actually created by nature and the woman who was serving me the strawberries right there in her yard. And, and all of a sudden, I, it really just made this thing change in my brain. And it was the second or third time I had this kind of experience where I was like, wow, as people, we really can make all of our own needs. Yeah, it's totally true. Like, I could say so many things there, but... um. Anyway, well, what do you want to tell us about next? Um, let's see. We, we talked about a little bit about Apropedia, and I'd love to encourage your, your uh, listeners to go check out Apropedia if they're looking for how to do rainwater catchment or some new thing with, with gardening or permaculture or, or solar or animals or solar dehydration or, or anything that they're like, I, I wonder if I can build this. Um, uh, I suggest checking out Apropedia. It's a very, it's it's a very ugly site, and I apologize to all your listeners about that. someday we'll make it pretty. Um, and and uh, uh, Emilio, our executive director, if you're listening, I'm sorry I called the site ugly, and I know that you're going to make it pretty. Um, but it reminds me of like looking at Wikipedia, except for it's got more photos and way cooler entries. Oh, thank you. That's what I I think it is a lot like that. And in fact, we're based upon the same. The same software as MediaWiki, they've been uh, and Wikipedia, they've been really uh, uh, supportive and helpful over the years. Um, uh, but what we and what we do have is nitty gritty information, the type of stuff you won't find almost anywhere else. 
uh, we follow up on, there's projects that have been first, first written about 10, 13 years ago about uh, on Apropedia that then five years later, eight years later, 10 years later, people are coming back on and saying how the project is doing and what has had to change. And, and that's the type of- That's type awesome. It's like a giant yeah. database full of information on how to help um, communities create their own solutions and that are sustainable and good for our environment and sharing like food and permaculture and all these cool concepts I, that my I, listeners I, love. Yeah. I, and, you know, I think that uh, I'm guessing that your listeners have had the same experience as me is that the internet is filled with lots of really cool, pretty photos of, of seemingly good ideas, but, but, but in actuality, the ideas just don't work, you know, and you, you'll see that a lot. We're, we're on Pinterest all, all over with Apropedia, uh, but, but at the same time, a lot of times, you know, when I'm, when I'm looking on Pinterest for a new garden idea, I'm seeing these, these you know, uh, animated GIFs or these pretty photos of things that I know don't work, you know. Yeah, like, or memes. Uh, Oh yeah, that these people memes, think like, if it's a meme that it's like totally like that's one of my big things is media literacy is like people who just look at a meme and think well that has to be true without like ever opening up the article maybe and like reading the actual article and making sure that there's factual information there it's coming from a credible resource or yeah like that somebody's tried it so that's good yeah. that your site has been like vetted and um that's great when people come back like years later and can say well this is you know maybe we made this tweak or something to make it better yeah and, and sometimes the tweaks are small like we had a gray water system um where people were taking the water from their 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 sinks and putting it through gray water treatment and then using that water to to grow plants and uh their filter was this stretched cloth filter and i mean in retrospect of course that filter wasn't going to last long Right. But but if you looked at the page originally, you saw this cloth filter. Well, a year later, you'll see an update that's like, yeah, we, we we had to get rid of that cloth filter. It didn't last long. But we use this metal screen instead. And then they have a photo of the metal screen. Right. So you can as a as a as a reader, you now get to bypass this problem that they initially had because you're on a site where people can follow up with information. And where and where the emphasis is on that, like we're not we're, we're trying to show our failures so that we can all learn from it and make new mistakes. And the other thing about it is like, it's a nice concise site. If you're trying to do some research, like maybe you live somewhere where you can't water your, you just save your gray water. You can't save rainwater at all, or you don't, you know, you have like water issues and you want to figure out other solutions. Um, like it's probably a, a good resource that you could take to like your local community council or whoever, you know, your local town or your village or whoever it is that you're trying or like, you know, you can have sources and put information into a paper like, well, Hey, it's working here. And look, they've been documenting this for five or eight years. So yeah, we can do this. If somebody's telling you, maybe they can't. Right. And that, that's the idea is, is making all of us our own R and D. Right. So if we, if we all work together as, as individuals, we don't have the, the millions and billions of dollars that corporations have for research and development. But if we all work together, we have an incredible resource where we can be each other's research, research and development and just keep making our projects better and better. And like you said, being able to go to the city council and say, hey, look, this is what's happening in this community. This community is really similar to, to ours and they've made it work. So it's not just an idea. Uh, and, and the Rainwater book is, is, is 
in part for that. You know, we were able to change the law in Eureka, California, on where your water tank could be. Um, so now your water tank can be placed in your on your property wherever it makes the most sense for gravity feed, so that you can use the natural flows of nature instead of having to use electricity to pump, even if it violates the setback law. So we were able to change change that law, and and we're hoping that the book can can do that in in more places. Um, the book is is split into kind of three sections for 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 your readers. There's uh, or for your listeners. There's uh, just stories of how communities have have come together to be able to catch the rainwater. Then there's kind of the DIY, like these are all the parts, and, and in a way that's supposed to be very adaptable. So you know, almost no matter what community you're in, you can see five different roofing materials and five different ways to convey the water and five different types of storage tanks from homemade ones to store-bought ones. Um, and, uh, and then there's a third of the book that's like the math and science. Right? And, and you can skip that or you can really go in and, and try to challenge yourself because if you can, if you're gonna understand the math and science of that, then you can adapt these type of systems to not just rainwater, but also to your gray water systems and maybe your fog capture systems and, and uh, um, your natural landscaping uh, by learning how to use, use gravity and, and friction and storage and flow rates uh, in a more mathematical and, and, and scientific way. I'm thinking STEM projects. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, and the book is specifically, one of the reasons we included that is so that it could be included in STEM classes as part of the curriculum. So there's a problem set at the back of the book that most of our readers are never going to look at. Um, uh, but, but for our students who are using it as part of their curriculum, uh, what I've found as, as an educator, I think is something that many educators have found, which is that some students can only learn when they understand why why they're learning not just the not just the what not just the how but the like why am i learning this and then what i found which i think a lot of educators have found is that is that no student is hurt is hurt sorry no student is hurt by understanding the why they're learning this so it can only help so when a student learns about uh um, geometry like some students can just learn it cool we're learning geometry but some students if they don't have a why, they just can't engage. But once you learn that by, by understanding how to calculate area and by understanding how to multiply that by, by height to get volume, you can now calculate how much water you're storing and then see if that can meet your needs, that you can become self-sufficient through geometry. All of a sudden, you have greater engagement by all of the students. I'm one of those why questioner types, like, uh, isn't it Gretchen Rubin that came out with like the four types, like there's the rebel and the questioner and like the objectioner or the follower. I don't know. Anyway. Yeah. I like to know the why right. to get on and so, board. And that's how the book, it, the, the math and science part of the book, that's how it's set up. It's, it's this, the only math we're doing is the minimum amount of math you need to do to be able to figure out what's a good idea and what's not a great idea. So if you wanna know, can we catch enough water on this roof to build a garden, right? 
then then this book can lead you through the math to do it. If you want to know how much storage will we need to provide all of our drinking water and all of the water inside of our home, then the book will lead you through the math you need. And all of a sudden, that becomes useful for, for anyone looking to build a system. And it also becomes this, this traction and context for STEM education. But the other cool thing about it is that it breaks it down. So, like, you wouldn't be, don't be intimidated, listeners. Like, it's, it's, you know, it's like for, like, anybody could read this, right? I, Absolutely. I'm, I know I kind of skimmed it because I downloaded the, the PDF version. And it's, you know. Yeah, it's, it, the, the math is math that, that, that everyone can do. Some people just break out into cold sweats when they think about math. I know. Uh, I was just telling somebody this the other day that I was so shocked when in my uh, parent teacher conferences the other day that like when I went to school, how many of my classmates in the education department hated math and were like terrified of math. Right. And so I, I really I work with a lot of students who feel that way about math. Uh, and I really try to break it down into in, into the the smallest but accurate bites um, so that you build up your your success with it because it is math that everyone can do and we're we're born as mathematicians you know like uh um one of the first tests that that the um that they give to to kids about oh about cognition is you know you put i I don't remember what it's called you probably do because you're in education but you put a ball in a basket right you show this you show the the youth like a six-month-old a basket uh and it's empty and you put a ball in it and you show it to them and, and there's a ball in there, and they're like, "Yeah, okay, there's a ball in there." And then you put another ball in there, but you have a trap door, so you've taken out one ball, and you show them the basket again, and there's only one ball inside, and their mind's blown because they've seen magic, right? They're like, "How is there only one ball in there?" Which also means that their mind is blown because they were doing math, right? <laughs> they're doing math, and the math didn't work out. You put in one ball, there's one ball. You put in another ball, there now should be two balls. You've just done addition. Right? And that's really the type of math that we're talking about in this book for the most part. You know, it's, it's just with different units and, it be, and we kind of keep building onto itself. So it becomes more complex. And eventually in the book, you might have even a spreadsheet. You might have done it all by paper or you might have done a spreadsheet, which of course is available to all the readers for, for free, um, uh, a spreadsheet that does, that does the math for you. Yeah, and it's all and it's illustrated really nicely. Like there's tons of pictures to go. There's way more pictures than there is math. Yes. Yeah, that uh, on purpose. The the uh, the goal of the book is that if if you have the book in your hand, just by holding it, you're you're more likely and more empowered to just build a system. Uh, and that and that flipping that flipping through it will get you even closer. Uh, skimming it will get you closer, um, and then perusing it will get you really, it will get you all the way there. But that, you know, that's the the photos end up being a big part of it for for me, and, and we spent a lot of time trying to make sure that the pictures looked good, which was a whole learning lesson on its own because this was the first book uh, that that I published. What about like the catchment area and the roofs? Like, I see that there's like this one illustration diagram of like. Is there a difference between a flat roof and a pitched roof? So, so for some reason, this ends up being one of the harder concepts to convey in the book. And so, um, uh, 
when I wrote this book, I had uh, over 100, actually I had close to 200 beta readers, people reading the book and telling me what they, what they were still missing. And, uh, and this concept that, that we're about to talk about was one of the ones that people just weren't getting. And so in the book, there's incredible diagrams by uh, um, uh, a graphic designer, or I should say a, a 3D designer, Gabriel Krauss. And he drew images to help people understand this concept. So I'm going to try to describe it to you <laughs> on, on this podcast, but you might just have to look at the picture. In most places, the average rainfall is straight down. So rainfall is coming straight down on average. Well, if rainfall is coming straight down on average, then it doesn't matter if your roof is pitched or your roof is flat. You're only catching the, the projection of that rain, which is like the footprint of your house. It's like the, the square footage of, the, of, the, of that bottom floor. It, it, it's catching that or the shadow under direct noon. Like if you think about solar noon when the sun is directly above you and the shade is coming straight down, especially if you're at the equator, that's, that's your catchment area. And so your roof area might be much greater because if you have a, a really high-pitched roof, you might have a lot of roof area, but you're not catching any more rain than if you had a flat roof for the same footprint. I don't know if that made sense. What I found is that people really need the diagram. <laughs> yeah, well, that's what I was attracted to was the diagram is so cool. I guess I didn't really read it. <laughs> so I didn't realize it was so complicated. It looks pretty basic in the picture. You know, I think it. I think it's really basic, and I think once people get it, they're like, "It's really basic. Why didn't you just describe it like blank?" And I'm like, "That's pretty much how I described it." But I, I, I think that the diagram, you know, really, really helps bring that across. It is important for the math because uh, uh, what I found is that some people uh, had calculated their roof area to figure out how much rain they could catch, and if they have a high pitched roof, the roof area is really big. But it's not uh, having a larger roof area doesn't mean you're catching more rainwater. If that rain is falling straight down, it's just the projection. Or if you really like math, it's the cosine to parallel with ground of the roof that's catching the rain. No, I don't like math that much. <laughs> Sorry, there's no cosine in the book, I promise. <laughs> cool, I hated those things. <laughs> that was when I was like, all right, I've had enough of math for now. Cosines and tangents and whatever all that other stuff was. Uh, I liked algebra. That was about it. Um, so what else can you tell us? Like, I don't know. There's just so many cool things. Like, what about, like, it seems like there's so many different designs. Like, are there any materials that you recommend over others? Or things that you found that connected well? Or pipe designs yeah. or any of that kind of thing for me it's about what you can find and maintain locally and so i end up using in in northern california i end up using a lot of pvc like just the, the standard pipe that you see um, it's really easy to put together um, i have access to it i can always find replacement parts um, uh, that said even pvc it, it it takes a little bit of knowledge to work with it uh, one of the things that people will learn quickly about water is that water will find its way, right? Like if you, uh, if, if you think that you can contain water um, easily, 
then <laughs> you might be in for, for a surprise. And you'll see this where people have joined PVC incorrectly. And then they'll try to put like around the outside of it, they'll put a sealer around the outside of the joint. And that's just not going to work. Water, water will find its way out of that. When you're working with PVC, you want to use, uh, first you want to sand the end, just, just a quick sand. You want to clean and sand the end. And then you're going to put the, uh, uh, the PVC cement on there. And when you combine the pieces, you're going to give them a twist. That makes sure that you have contact all the way around. And then that PVC cement, it's not um, a glue in the way that you typically think about a glue. It's chemically reacting with that PVC and then chemically fusing the PVC together. And that's what allows you to, to contain water pressure without it leaking. And so it's really worth doing the prep and, and, and doing it right so that you don't try to come back later and put a seal around the, the, the joints. Um, another spot when you're, when you're working with water that, that water will try to squeeze out is uh, um, any holes that you've put in. And so if you're gonna put in a hole to, to put in a tap, for instance, into your container, um, I suggest using a bulkhead fitting. Don't try to just glue a tap onto your container. And what a bulkhead fitting is, is just a piece of threaded pipe that has washers on both sides so that you can tighten those washers and squeeze, squeeze them together, uh, uh, forming a seal where, you're, where you've installed your tap. Um, and, and those are a couple of a couple of things for when I'm working with PVC. But in in other places, sometimes I'm working with metal. Sometimes it's bamboo. Um, it, it really depends on what's locally available uh, that people know how to work with that that your that the the person installing it feels comfortable working with. Um, the book tries to increase some of that knowledge. Uh, Appropedia has even more of it. Uh, there's luckily lots of YouTube videos, people working with all the different materials. Uh, so I think it's worth just finding out what do you have available local? What fits your budget? What fits your aesthetic? What fits your, your, your desires and your cultural norms? And what can you maintain for the long run? You know, we're not trying to make projects that just look good for a photo. You know, we want, we want water for the, the rest of our, our lives. And, and see what our- I keep thinking of is like one of the big I don't know, barriers or stumbling blocks people have on my show because people that my listeners tend to be like more master gardeners, people who have a really large area. And so automatic drip systems and automatic water systems are, you know, becoming more and more popular, more easy for people. And like, I think there's, you have answers to this and when you're going to have your solar powered thing, like, am I right about that or am I off base? Yeah, absolutely. It, I love combining rainwater and solar. And so, for instance, uh, uh, last semester, we worked with uh, um, a group that was doing drip irrigation for a food forest. And what they have, they have a situation where where their roof is, is uh, at the same level or below where their drip irrigation is. And so uh, you can't rely just on gravity, right? Also, when they need the drip irrigation is when it's not raining. So they needed to have a lot of storage. And so what we, what we ended up building together, and this was with a graduate class, uh, is a system that catches rainwater off the roof. And then it pumps via solar power without any battery. It pumps up to a much higher tank, uh, a larger and higher tank. It's one of those IBCs, the intermediate bulk containers. They're about 275 gallons. 
uh, I'm sure that your, re- your, your listeners have seen them. They're, they're kind of that opaque uh, plastic uh, square meter by meter by meter cube that is surrounded with a metal cage. Um, and uh, so you can often find those food grade. We have a food grade, one of those. And what we've done is we've oversized the solar panel. So as long as there's any sun, it's just going to start pumping up to that upper tank. And then we have a small timer. You know, it's like a like an eight dollar device uh, um, that uh, that turns on the drip irrigation system. Um, I think that that's the device we installed. Uh, if not, it was. I might be. I might be combining two systems in my in my head right now. But the, that's okay. Uh, Yes, but but what it is is that they have a drip irrigation system that that, that then is running off of that upper tank. Uh, so when they need the water, they have the water, and instead of having uh, an electric battery, the storage is really in the energy in the water. So they pump from the lower tank up to the upper tank whenever there's sun, and then that upper tank has the water and therefore the pressure to pro- to provide for the entire drip irrigation system. And uh, the the system is really smooth. Um, you know, they have year round operation and getting all of their water just from rain. And I mean, even G Martin 48 talks about like, that's almost a necessity. If you're doing a market farm is to have storage. Um, and I, I want to say it's a rainwater system that he talks about. Like, I just think this is awesome. And it's just, it's going to make having a garden more available to maybe people that didn't think they could have one. I, I, I hope so. Um, you know, grow, anything that gets more people and more communities meeting more of their needs, I think just just is automatically going to provide for a better future for everyone. And it's not Absolutely. that everyone to be getting all of their needs. So, you know, the more people you have gardening, the better, the more people catching their own rainwater and their own energy, the better. And then as a community, we can kind of share those resources. I agree. Cause I'm kind of like you and I generally don't have time to do more than herb gardening. Like my husband's the gardener at our house. Cause I'm frequently gone. Like in the summer I can be gone for 12 hours a day easily. And even though it's nice to go to the garden, like sometimes I'm just tired when I get home and barely have enough energy to just cook dinner. But I always like to put fresh herbs in my dinner. And I like to have like, like I was just looking at my pictures of my herb garden from two winters ago. I was like staying in an apartment during the school year, during the week. And like all the herbs I grew in that little apartment and when there was like tons of snow outside and just, they would make my sandwiches just so much fresher and come to life. And my mom always cooked with herbs. Like I just love herbs and they smell good. Like one of the teachers at the school I'm at now at the beginning of the fall, she cut all this lavender and gave it to us. And I have like it dried. I, I just put them in a, you know, like, um, vase without water and every day like I smell that over my desk and it calms me or I'll like crinkle like one little like the tiniest little bit just makes my whole room smell better while I'm working I I love it and I also am lazy so I love that there's some people who love it even more than me and (laughs) will produce a, a whole bunch of it uh and and so for me being able to be part of that community supported agriculture is great and then the more gardens I can help build rainwater and solar, uh, the more people are then sharing their herbs and 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 fruits with me. Um, uh, I'd love to point out that that you know there, there's the resources on Apropedia, and then the book, which is available for free, if the uh, if the users purchase a paperback, 
the proceeds of that money go directly to Apropedia. Um, so Apropedia is a nonprofit, then takes those funds and puts more into the infrastructure of sharing. Um, and so, uh, uh, so purchasing the book really ends up helping to, to, to spread the word to more people. Um, and then uh, a lot of people have found the book to be attractive and nice to just have around as well. And inspiring. And you never know who you're going to want to loan it to or when you're going to want to read it or when like you're going to look back at it and be like, oh, yeah, this is the right time to do this right now at my place. Because like my husband built like we call it like the little bee crick. And even though like it only runs a little bit here and there when we have the hose running, like if it's during a drought summer, we can't. But we try to like have a hose like and then the moss will build up on it. And then the bees like to go sit on the moss and like drink. And like even though Mike's is like, I don't know, maybe 20 feet long on a pretty big hill at our house because we have a really large area. Like if you had a small one, you could just have one that's like two feet long but still like because bees need a place to sit so they don't drown and just like they love sitting on that moss and like the water like there's like zillions of tiny itty bitty bee-sized puddles that they can just safely sit and get water and yep. um it's just so important and you know if you could feed that with rainwater that would be but again it's like the storage issue because our two rain bells, when it rains a lot, they fill up really fast. You know, we have like those, I don't know, kind of like the ones you have in your pictures, you know, like olive, I don't know what they are. You know, The pickle barrels? The yeah, ones exactly. Yeah, 35-gallon pickle barrels. And yeah, so we have like two of those. So when it's raining a lot in the spring, they're full. But then like come August when we need them, they're more dry. So, yeah, storage yeah, the- is key. It is. And the book talks about ways to add more storage. And I love that you mentioned pollinators. Some of our readers have been making really small rainwater catchment uh, pollinator gardens um, so that there's uh, so that there's always plants, but also just water, a small amount of water trickling through year round. So that uh, so just like you said, so that bees can can stop and and, and hydrate. Um and I think it's not something I thought about when I wrote the book that people would be making uh, these just for pollinators. But I love that that's one of the things that people have done. I think it's a brilliant application. Uh, and and one of the things I'm excited about with the next book uh, are people that are working with taking their solar arrays and making them pollinator friendly. And one of the ways you can do that is you can collect water off of your solar panels and then store that water so that there's w- so that there's water provided for pollinators when they need it. Is that kind of like when they make those like water collectors on the roof in the solar panel type of thing? Um, I'm not sure which which ones you're referring to. There's the solar thermal on the roof where it's heating water. Yeah. Um, But those don't collect water on the roof. They're just pumping water through the roof so that it, so that the sun can warm it up. Um, I feel like I've been nodding the whole time we've been talking. (laughs) Like I just, I'm always agreeing with what you're saying. My head's like just nodding and it's so beautiful today. Like the sun is just shining on my desk. It's just like the perfect day. Uh, I like that. I uh, hope you can send some of that our way right now. It is uh, very cold and and wet out here in Northern California, um, which is perfect weather for catching the rain. 
that's true. My husband said we have like more rain this fall than I think like it's been a record year for rain. And then it did get super cold the last two days. So today is just perfect with the sun out because it's a little bit warmer. We're going to go get firewood as soon as we get off the phone. So yeah, I will, I will try to send some sun your way though. Thank you. You know, and in this time of global climate change and global climate weirding, that's just going to keep happening. Storage is one of the ways that we can help build some resilience into this new weather pattern where we get lots of water and then no water. Um, and so it, you can use it even, even for helping to restore your water table by slowing down the, the, the amount of water that's, that's coming at once. And you can do that by taking the impermeable surfaces that we've already installed, such as our roofs and our sidewalks, and, and catching the rain off of that and then using it a little bit later. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time. It's been really fun to, to get to know you on your show a little bit more. Um, and uh, uh, your readers can go to, to catchtherain.org um, in order to download the book. It's available on Amazon, your local bookstore. If you go in and request it, they can bring it in. Some local bookstores are already be carrying it and it's to catch the rain. And don't forget to leave an awesome five-star review on Amazon because it helps other people find it. And I know listeners that once you see the book, whether you get the PDF or you buy the book or both, um, you're going to be inspired because he has just done so many great things. So Lonnie, I never did ask you, my listeners are probably like, when is she ever going to add? Like, were you born between 1980 and 1995? Are you a millennial? Cause like I'm writing a book about rock star millennials. Thank you. I uh, um, I often get accused of being a millennial, which surprises me because I have a, like significant gray in my beard, and I feel like <laughs> that can't be enough. Uh, um, and just yesterday, I had students work with me to definitively decide that age-wise, I would be a Gen Xer, but that but that action-wise, they just don't know. <laughs> like, but my <laughs> given my sense of humor. Um, they're like, yeah, I don't know. Every once in a while you say a boomer joke. Uh, <laughs> so, um, uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I don't know enough about the, the, the generations part, but maybe that's something that's true about Gen Xers is that they just don't even know. And they kind of float around. <laughs> I'm a Gen Xer too. Uh, well, I kind of thought that way, but then I was like, well, I better just ask just in case, because then. Uh, I always like to rave about them, but I also, uh, think that, um, I don't know what I was getting at with that. Anyway, you know, I guess I never really did ask you, like, my final question is like, um, if there's one change you would like to see Lonnie to create a greener world, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about? And that might be your, I'm not going to butcher it, uh, Apopedia? Or a different project yeah. you'd like to see put in section? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Like, is it water? Or for for me, it's about it's about personal empowerment. So, the the if I was going to make one change to make the, the the world a better place for humans in the future, it would be to get more people making change right now and so if you're out there feeling like like you're you're too small or you don't have enough power to make change i'm i'm sure 
that that isn't true. And, and it would be to just get started, join up with local other people in your community and start making change happen now. And I, and I really think that all of us together can, can have a massive impact and in, in all of us in different ways. We need people working at the political level and at the activist level and at the, and at the on the ground practical making stuff level. But it's, it's about not feeling like there's nothing you can do because there's something everyone can do. And as far as donations go, yeah, I would love if you would donate to, to, to Apropedia. Um, the Apropedia Foundation is a 501c3 and we support communities all around the world um, and, and probably the majority of them in the US just because that's where we've been located for the, for the first 10 years of our organization, um, uh, supporting individuals and communities in, in making projects. And that's apropedia.org, which is uh, both hard to say and hard to spell, um, A-P-P-R-O-P-E-D-I-A. And then it's I'm, not really that hard to spell, but just like, I don't know, I'm a visual learner and I didn't have it like right in front of me. Like if I'm looking at it, I can see it, but I'm glad you spelled it. And then tell everybody your website again. Um, so the, the, the website is, is just at, uh, or the website for the book is to catch the And then, and then my name is, if, if you're looking for any of the other projects that I'm part of, um, uh, Luckily or unluckily, there's only one person with my name, so I'm really easy to find online. It's uh, Lonnie Grafman, L-O-N-N-Y-G-R-A-F-M-A-N, and your listeners are welcome to see what other projects I'm, I'm working on. Reach out if they, they want to try to get involved um, or donate, of course. Well, I think I definitely recommend listeners look at his websites and all the great things he's got going on. Check out the book you know, download it or buy it. If you like hard copies, I'm a big hard copy person myself too. And just thank you for sharing with us today. I know you're probably super busy and, um, just thanks for everything you're doing to take care of our planet and teach people and being active and, uh, have a great day. I really, I really appreciate it. I appreciate getting to know you and, 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 uh, uh, hopefully I'll get to know more of your listeners, after the show when they reach out about what projects they're working on for all of you out there doing stuff already thank you thank you so much and for those of you growing food thanks for that yeah thank you Lonnie have a great day you too bye-bye do you know someone who would benefit from the organic gardener podcast if you like what you hear we'd love it if you'd share the organic gardener podcast with a friend thanks again for listening and remember grow local 